The planet's puppet masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man And until you've thoroughly tested every last close just That's true, Dr. Sayers. Very well. Where would we be without THC? Cause we know they're lying to us, just don't know to what degree. Yeah, where would we be without THC? The highest side chat show, Greg Carwood Company. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, higher side chatters. From the Sunshine State, I'm Greg Carlwood. And if you just take stocks of the events in the last few decades and how they are recorded in the official record compared to the unadulterated alternative take and dare I say truth when it comes to events like 9-11, multiple shooting massacres, moon landings, and of course the COVID years, you can see how the history books will tell a completely different tale. And after a generation or two, there is no skepticism left. No alternative narrative preserved to counterbalance the persistence of a state-sponsored academic official record. Now consider a pre-internet world, or even a world before film and photographs. What resistance is there to a capstone cabal crafting its own version of the big story? And how can a person seek the truth of anything? Official records should be scrutinized, but any skeptics of their day would have been effectively neutralized, and the further we go back, the tighter the control and consolidation on what we might call official history. So when researchers like today's guest Michelle Gibson start finding all sorts of anomalies from so-called natural canals that clearly have masonry on their banks and elaborate architecture marvels that have no explanation and don't fit in with the history we're handed, to out-of-place artifacts and sacred geometry symbols blanketing the earth, the wheels start turning as to what might have been erased and the question of how did the royal families and robber barons get control of almost every corner of the earth in such a short period of time? And how much resistance to officialdom was snuffed out with inquisitions, crusades, colonialism, and the elimination of almost anything they came across? Well, these are the types of questions and concerns that drive Michelle's amazing alternative history research on her absolutely overflowing website, piercingtheveilofillusion.com, as well as her YouTube channel. I've spent over a dozen hours on her work and previous interviews, and I have barely wrapped my head around it all, so let's get into it. The History Hijack Highlighter, Moorish Erasure Restorer, and Earth Energy Grid Educator, Michelle Gibson. Welcome to the higher side. Well, Greg, thanks for the invitation, and I'll try to live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. This is a real treat. There are a handful of people catching on to the hidden history alternative timeline trend, but your work stands out as really high level and the amount of detail you include is really impressive. I learned about your work when a listener said that Sylvier Ivanoa's New Earth channel was an influence and inspiration for some of your work. And that stuck out to me because we've had Sylvier here several times and I hold her in really high regard. But how should we break people in? What would you say is the overview of your work and major themes that weave throughout it? I can do that, Greg. And the best place for me to start is when I was really young. And I grew up outside of Washington, D.C. in a place called Rockville, Maryland. Gaithersburg and Rockville. But we went to church in Rockville even when I lived in Gaithersburg. And my dad played softball for the church team. And I wasn't interested in that. 
So when I went to practices, I would go off into the woods and down, surrounded by trees were these big stones. I'm about seven years old, so I'm not thinking anything at the time. It was only in retrospect when I looked back on that. And then I suppose just growing up in that area, lots of memories of going to Harper's Ferry, and that's come up in my work a lot. A lot of anomalies there. And there's a tripod stone there. I think it's called Jefferson's Rocker or something like that. Grew up around the CNO Canal. Hiked at the bluff there, Mather Gorge. And so I've got these memories kind of tucked away in my mind, but I grew up in a middle-class family, very conventional. My parents were teachers, and I grew up next to a golf course, and Mm. I'm convinced I grew up on top of a flat-topped pyramid because our house was on the flattest part of the street called Lindley Terrace, and as you went down the street, the backyard just dropped off into this slope kind of like a boomerang. But where we were, it was perfectly flat. And so I'm pretty sure I grew up on top of that. And there were earthworks in the area surrounding where I lived, and that's all in retrospect. And I was always interested in alternative information and shows like Unsolved Mysteries. I watched when I was growing up and in search of Ann Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World. And at that time, that was really the only alternative information that was available. Right, right. But I watched it religiously. (laughs) And it's like, give me more. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What about this? (laughs) So I can honestly say I think I've always had this interest in hidden history. And my life was pretty conventional up until after I went to Montgomery College for one year. And I'm sitting at work thinking, you know, I don't have the money for the next couple of years. And I picked up the phone and I called the Army recruiter, or I started looking around at the branches of the service. And I ended up joining the Army. And I actually went to basic training in October 1st of 1982. And I had just turned 19. This is significant because had I not done that, I would never have set off on my own path, I would have pretty much stayed stuck in family issues and wants and needs and obligations. There's part of me, I was born in July, July 19th, so my son sign is cancer. And so I've always kind of been a caregiving kind of person. And I would have pretty much stayed in that mode, I think. But by joining the Army and starting my own life, was the beginning of unplugging from the matrix because I've never done really what was expected I would do. So in my family, a lot of college grads, or at least in my parents' generation, I lived in a place where it was more common for people to go to college than not in Montgomery County back in those years. I'm not sure what it's like now. And so I traveled. I went through the experience of testing myself with basic training and AIT, and I was in the service for the full time. There were times that I could have gotten out. I liked the food in Germany way too much, and I gained about 60 pounds when I got over there right away. So I was on the overweight program for a little while. And I was probably about a month away from being let go 
And I decide, well, finish what you started. <laughs> and so I lost enough weight to be able to stay in with their pinch test. Nice, nice. Basic was hard. And when it came to the end of cycle test, I scored 27 out of 30, which was what I needed to graduate. So I did what I needed to do to continue on that. And then I had signed up for the Veterans Educational Assistance Program. And I had money for college when I got out, got my degree in social work and psychology, and spent almost 13 years in geriatric, well, primarily geriatric social work, nursing home work. Mm. And it all goes into shaping <laughs> a lot of different things. But I met my husband, who was a retired Army sergeant when I was in Germany. And we got married a week after I graduated from college. And then I moved away from the Maryland area permanently, only going back for visits a couple of times. And we moved to New Mexico. So I was already getting a different feel, different history, not awake at that time, but, you know, memories are being stored. We moved to Fairbanks and lived there for about five years. And that was one of the places I started to wake up. Not completely, but I was starting to look at different ways of knowing and living and, you know, not a typical life, you know, when you live in a cabin with no running water and you know, my husband was to running water, use an outhouse for the bathroom. That was part of the breaking away from the matrix because I didn't have to have things a certain way to be happy. Now, my parents had cows. And that was about the time that the Unabomber was making headlines. And so you're living in a cabin and you're in. <laughs> it's like, uh, that's my choice. And I know I'm not shooting anybody. But that was not in their mindset. You have a house with a garage, you live a certain way. And I was open to new experiences. And to kind of tie that into the work that I'm doing currently, being open to information is extremely important. And I was always interested in history and school and secondary school. And I'm really glad I did not choose a history major because that probably would have set my ideas. And I don't know that I would have been open to what I've been receiving. Right. A deeper indoctrination. <laughs> but it did give me a good grounding in what we're taught the history was, which is super important. Your work, I think one of the most interesting things about it is you could just look at it, really, if you wanted to be skeptical and go with the conventional narrative, you could still learn a lot from your work because you really are just picking up the official narrative and looking at the dates and saying, well, does this really make sense under the microscope and comparing it to other things? So one doesn't really have to even buy the big premise to enjoy the journey of the work because there are so many facts peppered throughout it. But I obviously can tell from my notes here now, we are not going to get to everything. But the overview of your story is that the old world is hidden in plain sight all around us. And I even went to the three major cities I've lived in, St. Louis, San Diego, and now Tampa. And there's elements of your overall premise in all three places. The most well-known architecture in all three places has this Moorish influence. So it's kind of funny. They say it's a Moorish reconstruction, a Moorish architectural revival, but 
you know, we'll get into what that might mean. But in terms of the overall premise, you're presenting a radical reconstruction of history. What should people know about that reconstruction? You have 10 hours. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the bottom line is that there was a highly advanced civilization on Earth that existed for a much longer period of time than anything we've ever been taught. That civilization had its roots in ancient Mu, also known as Lemuria, and that it existed for a long time, and that the Atlantean civilization is a continuation of that, and that it wasn't just a continent in the ocean, it was all over the world. It was highly integrated, highly unified. The Moorish comes from the word Mu. I was just going to add that from a paragraph I have here where you say, the more I look into all of this, the more direct interconnections I find between all of the subjects I'm delving into with this new series about the ancient advanced Moorish civilization, a civilization which existed up until relatively recent times, and about the manner in which it's been covered up. More or more or pertains to the people of this ancient civilization that originated during the time of Mu, also known as Lumeria. The Moors were and are the custodians of the ancient Egyptian mysteries. All of the Moorish science symbolism was taken over by other groups claiming to be them, falsely claiming their works or piggybacking on their legacy or even giving a darker meaning by association with certain things that were not the original meaning. And this is really interesting. I was going to ask you about this crest or this symbol that you show. It's like a coat of arms, I suppose. And it includes the eye and the pyramid, the star of David, the square and compass, and the number 333. It looks like it's associated with Islam. Maybe it's a really old thing. But what is that? that crest you show, and how does it kind of represent really a lot of this overall material? So we're taught a false construct from cradle to grave. And all of those symbols were fragmented and separated out, and it was all part of the original civilization. So you have the pyramid with the eye on top of it, which we've come to associate it with the Illuminati and Big Brother and the all-seeing eye and control system. It originally had to do with our connection with our higher selves. So the, you know, the eye at the top of the pyramid would be our pineal gland and our connection with the creator. And the steps, if you will, that it takes to reconnect. And the original civilization knew what they were here for. There wasn't any confusion about the shape of the earth, where they were on the earth how everything was all connected, how everything worked. And that was replaced with a control system where we're constantly distracted or drugged with alcohol or the endless flow and availability of psychoactive drugs that are harmful for humanity. That's all by design. I mean, they make it available and they destroy people and destroy communities. And we're spiritual beings. We've been cut off from our true identity as being directly connected to the creator and and actually all that is. And we're not murderous thugs by nature. That had to be manipulated and created. Right. And 
you talk about the main hijack, the main area you're focused on being between 1492 and 1942. These are the bookends on a lot of the manipulation with 1717 as a midpoint year. And you have reasons why that is important. But of course, 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. That obviously is the tale we tell to kids. So that obviously makes sense for that. But also, when you really dig into the emergence of the royal families and the colonialism years, they captured everything. France alone controlled more colonies than the current size of Europe. The British Empire and Spain were even more dominant. India was captured. China was captured through the Opium Wars. The U.S. was obviously captured. The House of Romanov was the reigning imperial house of Russia from 1617 to 1917, And that was just another branch of the royal family tree. Nicholas II was a cousin of King George. So you start to look around the world and there's not a lot left that went untouched. They were extremely motivated by something to get to even the hard to reach places with an emphasis on killing, plundering, converting and reeducating everything and everyone they found. Then you add 100 years to it. What's left? So, I mean, the crux of your work is the hijack that took place largely within those years, 1492 and 1942, right? Mm-hmm. An impressive amount of ground was covered. I mean, there's even more of the story that's kind of coming out. But, you know, when you look at the mechanics of the hijacking of the original civilization and the legacy of the original people, and let me just kind of revisit that because when they separated everything out, We've been taught that the Egyptians, the Israelites, the Muslims are all separate from each other, which is far from the truth. It was all part of the same, I'm just going to say system, if you will. It wasn't separated out. They had the original instructions about how to reconnect with the creator and holy books and things like that. But the controllers got everything when they did this. So my journey to get to the whole timeline idea was kind of interesting because my original research started, and I'm going to share my screen here. Okay. So this is my website, and I've been blogging for over five years. And once I started blogging, I made one video that was going to be my only video. And somebody subscribed, so I thought, geez, I've better start making videos. And all I have to do is convert my blog posts to video form. And that's how my YouTube channel started Mm -hmm. around the same time. And that map is very important to your work. I believe you mentioned that a friend gave that to you. They felt that you needed to have it. It's a star tetrahedron over the United States with a lot of interesting plots pointed Along the way, another example of how synchronicity folds into you being the one doing this research. But yes, I think you were just about to tell us about this map. So I'll turn it over to you. The synchronicity has been off the charts, but that's been my whole life. So I was living in Oklahoma City when I really started to wake up to this. And I I had been preparing myself because I liked alternative books. And I was watching Megalithomania conference presentations, and that was there's a lot of information in there. So I had a good 
foundation, I learned about sacred geometry, which is how I found this. So my friend gave me the map. I had traveled with her and some other friends. And I had this next to my dining room table, and I started noticing cities in North America lining up in lines. And those are the faint lines that are here. That was my first stop. And then I found this line of cities between Edmonton and Ottawa. I knew the dimensions of the star tetrahedron. That's from sacred geometry. And so I, you know, just kind of going on feel, I found this line here and I just took it back up here and I thought, well, I wonder if I can find another one. And so that was when I found this one here with the apex in Merida, Mexico. And then from here, I extended the lines and I ended up writing them down on spreadsheets. And that was the beginning of my original research. I knew the ancients were precise. I knew, you know, other researchers had found other alignments. This was my particular original discovery. And when I started tracking the alignments, this whole hidden history started to fall right out. And by that, I mean the civilization itself. And then the colonizers were showing up along these alignments. And from that, I was able to get the bigger picture story of what happened, when it happened, that kind of thing. And I had been mulling in my mind that whole 1492, 1942, 1717, and kind of came up as a mechanism for that. And then I started researching history between that time period. And there was a lot going on in 1717. And the anomalies that I found from that process just kind of backed up this whole you know, how this history has been fabricated and overlaid on top of the infrastructure of the original civilization and reattributed to different people in different time periods, when in reality it was all part of the same civilization. There were empires within empire, but they weren't at odds with each other. They weren't fighting each other. And the whole world was laid out in a geometric fashion that aligned with each other and the skies above, the celestial phenomenon, astronomical alignments. And you see that with hinges, you know, Stonehenge and the Mary Hill Stonehenge in Washington State that's in better shape than the one in England. And I know there's a lot of questions now about whether that was fabricated or not the one in England, but it's a massive structure. I've been there that just like dominates the landscape. So all of these ancient monuments that line up with the heavens and, you know, people can show the Pleiades or solstices, other things, different constellations, Orion, lining up. But it lines up with modern architecture, too. So it's like there's been this continuous alignment of the physical infrastructure of the Earth with the heavens from ancient times to modern times. And there's a phenomena in major cities, the best known of which is Manhattan Hinge where the street grid lines up to the, the solstice. Right. I've seen you show that. Really <laughs> odd to be so random. Like, obviously, there was intention behind that. But curious thing, we know about that with sites like Newgrange, and we think about it in the old Ireland, old English area. 
but we definitely don't think of it in the United States yet. There it is. The sun aligns with the streets. So that's why the term hijack is so important. It seems like there was a global civilization using this grid to project a, a harmony, we could say. And then when the robber barons and the royal network that kind of emerged took over this thing, they obviously wanted to shut a lot of that down and suppress it and cover up that alternative history. So they had to compromise these locations. Some got destroyed, but some just got compromised and reintegrated into the new city. And that again speaks to the hidden and plain sight element. And I mentioned 1492 as obviously the year Columbus sailed the ocean blue, but also according to the official history in 1492, Catholic monarchs Ferdinand II and Isabel I won the Granada War and completed Spain's conquest of the Iberian Peninsula and expelled the Moors from Spain. So this is like the death knell of the Moor civilization. And it's odd when you think about sending Columbus to the Americas or on this big expedition. They seemed a little busy at the time trying to reestablish this network unless there's more to it. Unless there's like, well, there could be a Moorish holdout somewhere over there or people who know about this. So let's go get them as well. Is that kind of the gist? So my working premise is that there was a deliberately caused cataclysm. I'll go into that in just a little bit. But when I first came up with the idea of the 1492-1942 timeline, there's 450 years in between those two years. 1717 is a center point year but 225 years on either side. And so I guess it was sometime in 2019 that I went through that time period. So you have, not only was that Columbus's first voyage in 1492 and the year of the fall of Granada in Spain, it was also the year that the first Castilian-Spanish grammar book came out. So they, they got into the languages too. Mm -hmm. but have to. That's an example 1492 was the year that came out. 1493 was the year of the Intercetarable from Pope Alexander VI. And that essentially authorized the land grab of the New World. There were two other prior bulls from Pope Nicholas, and I'm not as sure of his number, but one is the Dum Diversus. I think there was a Pope Paul III and he was the progenitor of the Jesuits in 1540. So there were three papal bulls that laid the foundation for the doctrine of discovery, which was the basis for all legal decisions that came after to justify the land grab and the claims of ownership from the original civilization to this new world system. So these three papal bulls, ending with Pope Alexander VI, enters a terrible. So they start sailing across, landing in uh, like Cuba, Hispaniola, which is Dominican Republic on one side, Haiti on the other side, and those particular islands in the landscape of the world we know today, and started establishing their claims to everything, introducing a new legal system introducing 
corporations, royal charters. This is ours by grace of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella or King James the sixth and first, you know, whatever country you're looking at. And what I've found is that there's nine 50-year periods within that 450-year time period that seem to be initiatory years. So if you look at 90, 91, 92, and 40, 41, 42, throughout those years, there were things happening that seemed to set something in motion. And within that time period, especially in the 19th century, the years 1800, let's say 1810, 1830, 1850, 1870, 1890, particularly, were red letter years for the new timeline. And these long arcs are not random events of history, but something very methodical from the top down. A hundred percent. And I've got that meticulously documented in my work. <laughs> it's in you different do. places, but it's there. You know, this is why I believe what I believe. I can back it up. You know, some of it sounds absolutely nuts, but what could be crazier than what we're seeing playing out in the world today? I mean, it's a wonderful time to be a truther. Yeah, good point. And we are still <laughs> dealing with a lot of the same institutions started by these very people you're criticizing. And that was going to be one of the points that I was going to make is that given how absolutely ruthless and far reaching the European empires were in their conquest and the ruthless tactics of the robber baron class, and all these people are connected through a network of wealth and family marriages, and now corporations, but they were always on the same boards of the banks and and companies. But given how ruthless we know they were, is it really reasonable to accept their description of what the world might have looked like before their global blitzkrieg on everything? Because that's who we have to go by. And they're the same people who told us everyone they came across was a dirty savage that needed to be skinned and burned at the stake. I mean, they did some pretty brutal things, and that's what they'll let us know about. (laughs) And that's how we got to this low level of consciousness, the level of Beavis and Butthead. Mm. They've educated us in their history. And I don't know how many people know that the Rockefellers were highly involved in the American educational system. and. To go back to the timeline, 1717 was the year that the Premier Grand Lodge of London was founded. And it was actually Moorish Masons that built everything. Moorish science. Yes. Important point. I wanted to make sure the audience understood that you're making the premise that the old stuff that we see that we're told the Freemasons built with their talent for architecture and knowing about sacred geometry and encoding all this, that's a hijack. This was just the European Freemason Secret Society network that claimed these works that are the Moorish remains from their empire. There's a a ritual within Freemasonry related to Hiram Abiff, who is an architect that's credited with the building of Solomon's Temple. 
And it's something that they reenact ritually, I think mostly with the lower levels of Freemasonry. And I found a link to that and it talked about operational Freemasonry versus speculative Freemasonry. The Freemasons themselves say that they're speculative Masons and that the Keys of Solomon, the operational Masonry, was lost when Hiram Abip was murdered by three unworthy craftsmen. And that's basically what happened. The Moors were murdered by these beings that can't hold a candle to them, but they can run around in fezes and all to the regalia of the original Masons and claim to be them. But they're not. At the same time, they are brutalizing and marginalizing those Moors. Yes, I wanted to make a point here. So I mentioned the three major cities that I've lived in, all having evidence of your timeline. In San Diego, it's the buildings in the area called Balboa Park, which was said to have been built for the World's Fair and meant to be taken down after and only remains because of the protests because people are like, what? You're going to take this down? This is the most amazing thing ever, which makes the story even more curious because the buildings are standing just fine, but the story is they were built for just a temporary period of time. That does not add up, but it does jive with the co-opting of things in the network of world fairs, which has been talked about. But in Tampa, there is a building called the Old Tampa Bay Hotel, which is now part of the university, also something that comes up in your work. But they say it was built by a billionaire in the 1880s. Its 500 rooms were among the first in Florida to be fully electric. And its elevator is one of the oldest working elevators in the U.S. And that's just interesting People could look up that building, the old Tampa Bay Hotel, and it looks Persian. It stands out against the skyline like a sore thumb. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But then in St. Louis, it's the Moolah Temple, which is less impressive, but it's certainly old Middle Eastern architecture in the middle of St. Louis. Officially, it was built in 1912 by the Moolah Shriners as the 28th Shrine Temple to be chartered which is a great segue to this important part of your work, which is that we're told the architecture is the work of the Freemasons. We are making the case that it was co-opted, but I'm interested in where we see this with the symbolism of the Shriners because they do wear these fez caps you mentioned, and their symbol is this Aladdin-looking sword over a crescent moon and star symbol. This makes very little sense unless you know the secret of the Shriners, right? The thing that led me to the Moors was a Moorish-American friend that I met in Oklahoma City. And he was one of my traveling companions, along with the lady that gave me the map. So three white girls and a Moor going around Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Louisiana, going to these different places. And my Moorish friend, very, very quiet man, He didn't tell me the things that I picked up, but we journeyed together. And every time I tripped over something and he wore a T-shirt one time that had the pyramid with the all-seeing eye on it. And our friend Ann said, Osiris, why are you wearing an Illuminati T-shirt? And I said, yeah, why are you? And then, you know, we were in the process of leaving. And the next day I get all these emails of him sending me information about the Moors because it's actually the Great Seal of the Moors. 
it's got Islam in the bottom, and it means the connection with the Creator, and not as we've come to know it. He was also very, he is a very beautiful person, just a beautiful soul. And so I had a living more to help guide me into this information and this understanding of what I was seeing. I had found the star tetrahedron. We had traveled. I was starting to see these megaliths on the sidewalk next to where I lived, outside of Starbucks, outside of 7-Eleven. This ancient landscape is just starting to come right out. And I'm like, every time I go out the door, I was seeing something different and going, am I the only one that sees this? You know, it's just, and that's why I called my my website Pierce in the Veil of Illusion because I was when I was starting to see it, I'm like, I pierced that veil, <laughs> but I was the only one seeing it <laughs> for the most part. I mean, people pass by this stuff every single day, and they don't see it because we're not told that it's there. You know, it's like they're taunting us. This is hidden in plain sight. Yes, and the taunting it seems to be forward-facing in the Shriner organization, too, because that sword is over that symbol, and it almost seems like the Fez and just the smoking cigars, gentlemen's club atmosphere is a mockery of the Moorish culture and the Moorish empire, but this is really the dirty secret, it seems, of the Shriners, because it's a prerequisite to join the Shriners that you must be a Mason of some kind. So not all Masons are Shriners, but all Shriners are Masons. And it might be one of these things where the hierarchy is built out and you don't even know what the Shriners are really about, why that organization exists until you climb those ranks. But it makes sense that it would be founded as kind of a sticking the tongue out at the empire that you conquered and just mocking them. And that's wild to think about it that way. But you're filling in some gaps, yet the Shriners exist and they do use those symbols. So what's anyone else's explanation? And that's exactly what they're doing. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that the Shriners as we know it Shriners International was founded in 1870, which is one of those red letter years I was talking about. It was the same year. You know, you get a lot of stuff going on in USA and the founding of the District of Columbia as a separate entity. And there's a lot going on in 1870, 1871. And Tampa is the headquarters of Shriners International. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> Very interesting, because I know it has a deep presence in St. Louis, too. The Moolah Shrine Circus was always the thing as a kid that I wanted to go to. Ringling Brothers ignored us, but we had the Moolah Shrine Circus, which is just right there. It's in the culture of St. Louis, deeply embedded, but no one really asks questions about it. Right. And that's for good reason. I mean, that's just part of the, you know, the secret society hidden information. And there's other secret societies that were complicit as well, which would be the Odd Fellows was one and the Knights of Pythias which was a secret society that was founded by an act of Congress during the Civil War, like in 1864, the so-called Civil War, which I think was a cover for destroying this original civilization. I think that's what's going on with the Mexican-American War and the Spanish-American War and the Philippine-American War and the World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, Korea. It was all part of destroying the infrastructure and the people 
of this original civilization, which they want to be, but they're not. They have to get it synthetically. I don't believe that they're human souls. And that kind of gets back into some of my theories about what took place. So 1717, James Francis Edward Stewart was prevented from reclaiming the throne, the combined thrones of Ireland, England, and Scotland. And he was a descendant of King James VI and I. I have reason to believe that the Stuarts were of Solomon's lineage, like the Ethiopian emperors. Haile Selassie was the last one, and he was overthrown in the early 70s and strangled to death within a few years. They wanted those original rulers gone because they took the legacy of the House of Solomon and those bloodlines. So they aren't them, really, but they want to be identified as such. And it gets back to those symbols. And I've got it interspersed in my work, but there's eight-pointed star symbol. It's like a square, and then the star is formed by a second square that looks like a diamond. And I have reason to believe that that is a symbol of the original tribes of Israel. And that symbol is found all over the earth. And there are some others that are related. When I was in Peru and went to the Cora Concha, there was a wooden door at the entrance. And I took a picture of it before I was told you can't take pictures of that. The masonry of the Cora Concha is just exquisite. It's just beautiful. Well, I found that same design on the wooden it's either a door or a partition. I found that in the Alhambra in Granada. I found that in the window of a synagogue in New York. And then I saw it in a picture with Queen Elizabeth and Prince Andrew, I believe, on a wooden partition. It was the same symbol that was carved into the wood. And the uniforms the royals wear are identical to the royals of like the last king of Hawaii. So the last queen was Lilio Kalani, and then it was her brother, I think it was King Kalakawa, wearing the same type of uniform and that eight-pointed star on the sash. And then you can find other pictures of the original royal families wearing that same thing. So they just took, <laughs> took everything, claimed it as theirs. So I was guided to find out about the Great Frost of Ireland which took place between 1740 and 1741. And it was 21 months of extraordinarily cold weather that claimed the lives of about a half a million people in Ireland. And within just a few years, Mayor Amschel Rothschild was born in Germany. He was born in 44, 1744, and he was the founder of the House of Rothschild International Banking Family in Frankfurt. Just a few years after that, Adam Weishaupt was born, and he was the founder of the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati. In 1750, Duke Francis of the House of saxe coburg Saalfeld was born. He was the progenitor of what we know of as the new royal houses of Europe. So he was a grandfather of both Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. They were first cousins. 
it was through him that the new royal houses of Europe were seated, including the Romanovs that you mentioned earlier. So Queen Victoria and Prince Albert were responsible for most of that, their children. Right. And Queen Victoria at one point was even the Empress of India, which is just another weird thing that makes you scratch your head. It's a lot of territory to cover. Once again, this is a small network that really had everything. And while we're still in this first hour, I wanted to make sure we came back to the cataclysm, which I think you're working up to. And the fact that they maybe aren't human, fallen angels or archons or parasites of this reality, but this is really their emergence. I just wanted to make that point about Empress of India, because I don't know if everybody knows that. So this obscure ducal line that started by, really by Francis, Duke Francis, ended up seeding the whole original houses of Europe, and the other ones died out, were taken out, were prevented, you know, like James Francis Edward Stewart. But the interesting thing is they got some of the Stuart bloodline in their own lineage. And so King James's daughter, Elizabeth of Bohemia, was married to an elector, one of the Habsburg electors. And their daughter, Sophie, Princess Sophie of Hanover, was, I believe, I guess the mother of King George I. And there were a series of acts of parliament about the succession of being for a Protestant that was narrowing down to this particular bloodline. So it would have gone to Prince Sophie, but then she died, and then there was another person in line that died, and so it ended up being King George I acceding to the throne in 1714. So that's just a few years before the 1717 year. On July 17th of 1717, George Frederick Handel premiered water music on a barge on the Thames to the King, King George I. Exactly 200 years later, on July 17th of 1917, King George VI changed the name of the Royal House of Britain from Saxe Coburg and Gotha to Windsor. 200 years later, and that's where the numerology that you spoke of comes in. So they occulted this timeline. They're using these dates, ritual dates against us. So you see things happening on 322, which is the number of skull and bones, 9-11, and others throughout the year. There are certain dates that things happen yeah, it's that like- are of a ritual nature. It's like plot points in the big narrative, and they have to capture those energetic numbers and peg really negative events to those plot points. That's what they do. I think that's why they gave us linear time. Mm. The calendars previously were based on cyclic time, like the Mayan calendar and the Egyptian calendar, and on energies and tones. And it's interesting that 1582 was the year that the Gregorian calendar came into use, which was the same year that Scaliger published his new chronologies. There you go. The time and the space captured. Same time frame. So they turned that into a closed loop where they could do their rituals the same time, same every year. And we're just on this hamster wheel. Mm. 
Damn. And you mentioned you started this with how these people were all born around the same time. Is this how they came into our reality? Are these the fallen angels? Are these archons? What was the catalyst for these people being born on this plane? They've obviously had incredible success with their operation as if they are helped by some higher power. What's going on there? When you say they're not human, there must be something inside this human body, but what are the mechanisms in there and how does something non-human fit in with this? So some of the known quantities would be like John D, who was an advisor to Queen Elizabeth I and he was a black magician and he brought in fallen angels and Enochian language that's used a lot by the dark forces incarnate here in their rituals and the sigils like the monster sigil monster drink it's like an m those are sigils and we see the nike symbol (laughs) it's everywhere so those are things that people look to but what i've landed on and this wasn't i woke up one morning and this is what i believe this was the result of a process over many many years and while it might sound out there, I stand by it, and I found physical proof, and I think it was behind it, and that's the Philadelphia experiment. I've done extensive work to back that up. <laughs> you have. You have. I've gone over that. You think, but, but we know the Philadelphia experiment was much, much, much later what about this intentional cataclysm that you mentioned? This thing that's often called... That's what called, I think caused it. Really? The mud flood? The liquefaction? I wasn't exactly sure about that connection, but yes, yeah, sorry. Give us that so we don't leave the first hour people hanging too much. Okay. And I'm sorry for interrupting you, but... No, it's all good. I'm always here. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I think that's what caused it. Okay. And, you know, again, I encourage people to look at my website and my YouTube And if you type in Michelle Gibson Wars, it'll pop right up since I'm not the only Michelle Gibson out there. And I created my YouTube channel account long before I became a content creator. So that's why that's that way. But my website's piercingtheveilevolution.com. So I found the physical evidence for the Philadelphia experiment when I was following up on viewers' comments. And somebody suggested that I look at a location called the Weymouth Furnace at the Great Egg Harbor in New Jersey. And I'm just looking around there. I was just going to move on because I actually learned a lot that way from somebody says, hey, look at this place. And I've got several volumes on my website and on my YouTube channel of that type of information, including St. Louis and San Diego and, you know, that whole area. So I'm looking around this location in New Jersey and That's where the Pine Barrens are located. And there's bogs and swamps and, you know, all these stories about bog ore and, you know, metal that they would find in ore beds in these swamps. And I'm like, that sounds like a cover story to me. You know, there's infrastructure under there. But then I found out that the Pine Barrens of New Jersey, central Long Island, and coastal Massachusetts, which includes Plymouth, where the pilgrims were supposed to have landed, all lined up right next to Philadelphia and the Navy Yard. It was in a linear alignment. And I 
since extended those out either way. And there's this line of ruined land and swamps and bogs off the east coast of the United States. And I looked into it, and on the eastern end of Long Island, you have Plum Island, which is a bioweapons laboratory. They don't call it that, but that's what it is. Lyme, Connecticut is just 18 miles away from there where Lyme's disease showed up. You have Montauk Point and Camp Hero, where the Montauk Project allegedly, quote-unquote, was supposed to have taken place. And you have Brookhaven National Laboratory, where you have a reverse particle accelerator, exactly like what you have in CERN, at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland. Same setup. So it's like the reverse of that, identically. So you've got some high-powered stuff just right there on the eastern end of Long Island. And so I went down and looked at that. That is prime real estate. The wealthy eat it up. All through that part of Rhode Island, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Martha's Vineyard's in there, you know, the most expensive real estate in the United States. Why are they buying land that's ruined? (laughs) And if you look at it on a map or on Google Earth, it's terrible. Yeah, I always actually wondered why the richest people live in these cold areas, Vermont, Connecticut. It's not the best climate in the United States, for sure. So I always found that a little curious, but the Philadelphia experiment was said to have happened on July 22nd, 1942. This is why you have that other bookend to the years. And you think that this is a bit of a time loop that we're potentially caught in. And I guess the beginning part of it would have caused this mud flood. But that's the thing. Like, you're not saying the mud flood was 1492, are you? No, I think it happened with the Philadelphia experiment. So here's the other piece of that. And this is how I I ended up landing on it. I had heard about Alistair Crowley many, many years ago, but not in depth. He showed up in Book of Lists, which was published in 1977. And I read it. It's really thick. But I read that whole book, and he was on several lists and forgotten until he showed up in a lot of Peter Moon's books. And Peter's an alternative researcher that I found because I was looking for information about the Moors when I first started becoming aware of that. And he was one of the few people outside of the Moors themselves talking about the Moors. Richard Smith is another author that was talking about them. So I'm looking for whatever information I can find, because it's hard to find information about the Moors. And Alistair Crowley came up a lot. He didn't connect him to the Philadelphia experiment, but Peter's also done a lot of work around that and Montauk. And so I kind of had that in the back of my mind. And he was talking about Alistair Crowley's involvement in a lot of chicanery. So I was aware of him being in the mix. And Peter mentioned that Alistair Crowley had passed his baby son through the megalith at Menantol in Cornwall on the day of the Philadelphia experiment. Now, if you look up the Philadelphia experiment, you're going to get a lot of 1943. But when I first started looking into this, I found this July 22nd of 1942. And that was midway through World War II. And 
there was a line of energy when he did that with his son that went from this location in Cornwall down across the Atlantic. And he said it was connected to the Philadelphia experiment. Well, I can extend that line that I found with the Pine Barrens to this location. And I can also extend it down to a place in Louisiana. And there are abandoned trains and railroads all throughout the Pine Barrens in New Jersey, for example. Trains out in the middle of nowhere in this barren land that's been destroyed. And then one of my favorite shows is Pitbulls and Parolees. And I've, I've watched all the episodes. So <laughs> I found a short that Mariah had put out and they were on a swamp trip and there was an abandoned train in the middle of a bayou in Ascension Parish in Louisiana. And so I extended the line to that area. So I'm thinking at this point, my research is leading me in the direction, and again, I'm not just pulling this out of my behind. I am finding the evidence, tracking ley lines, finding these swamps and these deserts with dunes, where I think that that blew out. I've heard people talk about a plasma event, and on the day of the Philadelphia experiment, this green plasma built up around the vessel before it disappeared. And there's even a movie called The Final Countdown about a time-traveling naval vessel. Is that predictive programming? I mean, they have to tell us what they did, and that's a crazy storyline, because <laughs> we have to have their consent to do it, but we give it to them by them lying to us, you know, and packaging it up in something that sounds really nice, and there's actually something else behind it. So I think that blue through the ley lines and caused a lot of what we see, the sinking of the land. Now, I just did something called Trekking the Serpent Lay, and that's both on my website and my YouTube channel. And there's swamps along the way. You hear about bottomland hardwood swamps. There's a green swamp in North Carolina. There's a black swamp in Indiana, Ohio. There's giant furniture, chairs, and dressers. There's history of giant skeletons found throughout that area. It was really quite revealing, but where I'm going with this is there's a place called the Indiana Dunes. It's on the southern shore of Lake Michigan, and Michigan City is located there. And then there's Gary, Indiana. It's right next to them. The story of Gary, Indiana is that it was a magic city. And the history of railroad and so forth through that area. And again, I'm seeing the railroad, all railroad infrastructure is being pre-existing. And it was just made serviceable, again, by the controllers to use up. But Gary was supposedly transformed into this major city with this old world masonry in just a few years' time. It looks like the workers that were building the city were actually just digging it out of the sand dunes. And that was the location of a major plant of U.S. steel still there, still in operation. But Gary itself fell on very hard times. A lot of abandoned infrastructure there. So they want us to believe they went through all this effort to build this beautiful city, all this infrastructure. And then when economic times changed and, you know, a lot of times businesses get outsourced and go overseas and they set up the same system somewhere else. And I think when the unions came in, that started to happen big time. They needed to find a labor pool that they could pay low wages. So that's how the controllers sucked up all the 
wealth, especially in Appalachia, but I found this all along the Serpent Lay from the middle of the Bermuda Triangle to Lake Atasca in Minnesota, which is the headwaters of the Mississippi River. Mm, very interesting. And went right through Appalachia. And so they set up the company's door model and the company owns everything, whether it's a textile mill or a coal mine. They have a captive labor force because there's no, you know, you have to buy things to live. You get paid subsistence wages and scrip and things like that. And then the only place that will take your money is the company store. So it's essentially wage slavery. And that was the system in place all over the place. That was the model that they used. I mean, humanity has been hurting for a very long time, but that's how the robber barons, if you will, got so rich. Yes. And another element of how they got rich, I wanted to bring up here, I got from your work, that we know a lot of these big families, the early 1900s, they all were very successful, standard oil and all sorts of stuff. Well, in St. Louis, obviously, the Anheuser-Busch family is legendary. And it's not because they had the best beer, as your research shows, the Bush family was so successful because they were the first to have refrigerated train cars and pasteurization. But the refrigeration on the train cars is huge. It allows them to get their product out to more places. Clearly, even today, one of the biggest behemoth beer companies now owned by another company, as all these companies always swallow themselves up. But the reason why this family had their wealth was this technology that no one else had, you could say. And because you mentioned just digging out the train cars, that that infrastructure was laid, then you start to think about the robber baron class just rolling out technologies they know about from the old world as a new invention. And it allows them to capture markets that they couldn't get otherwise. I think the Bush family is a great example. The oil barons clearly tapped into the oil before anyone else, and the rest is history. But you just don't really know how much of this was not a new invention, but a dusting off of old technology and old processes that they could just dominate. One more thing about the source of the Bush family wealth was the whole idea of vertical integration, which was utilized in their business as well as Ford with the assembly line being developed, refined, and implemented for the mass production of these cars, where they owned all aspects of the supply chain. And with the refrigeration getting to places, they owned hotels, theme parks like Bush Gardens, which the next time you go there, check that out <laughs> with different eyes. You might want to look at, this is just a side trip, Sulphur Springs Water Tower. There's not much there. I mean, the place is deserted, but that thing is massive. That is a massive tower. And it's near Bush Boulevard. Things like that, again, it's given a crazy explanation in the historical narrative, but those massive towers, water towers and whatnot, could very well have also functioned as airship docking stations. And the one in Tampa, Sulphur Springs, historically had an elevator shaft in it. So if it was built for the reason we're told, which was to supply water to this guy's business in Sulphur Springs, 
why would it have an elevator shaft in it in, let's say, the 1920s or 1930s, whenever it was said to have been built? There's so many different aspects to this. So there's that whole idea of vertical integration in terms of owning the supply chain. And when the controllers came in and started setting up in these new cities, they were creating department stores and they were creating breweries and they were creating distilleries. They traveled up the Mississippi River, they traveled up the Ohio River, laying the foundation for their new system. And that was really in earnest about 1830 was when a lot of them started coming in. And again, I've done extensive research on that, particularly the German settlement of that region and let's just say Ashkenazi settlement of that region. Right. <laughs> it's a curious thing, but we tried to summarize a lot of dense, dense work and pull out some interesting threads, but I absolutely encourage everyone to dive deeper into your work. It is really great. Like I said, it contains so much detail. You can just be a fan of conventional history and still get a lot out of it. So challenge yourself, I would say. If people think this is a bridge too far, get in there and and really explore it and see if that's how you feel after you've digested a good number of hours and looked at the imagery that's associated too. So yeah, people should do that. And remind them before we go, the best places to find your work and what they get for going deeper with the Patreon. Well, my website where I have a blog is piercingtheveilofillusion.com. And then also my YouTube channel is Michelle Gibson and then type more in. And I do have a Patreon site, Patreon forward slash Piercing the Veil of Illusion. And I do have some bonus content on there. I'm going to be putting more on there. So it does help support my work and frees up some time so that I don't have to, I can focus on it. <laughs> sure, right. I have a, a VA pension, which is my primary income. And any financial support does help. So I want to be able to put as much time into this as I can, because I have plenty more coming. <laughs> it's just a time of the day. And I just turned 60 and I've got mild cataracts and I can still see, but my eyes get tired easily. So my best time to do any research is in the morning before my eyes give out. But I do think they've lost control of the narrative completely and they are losing their grip. Had the internet not come along, we probably would still be in the dark, but I don't believe they're going to get away with what they've done. And so when you ask, you know, was this allowed? I would have to say, so we could figure it out on ourselves because, you know, they can't help us without us helping ourselves, whoever they is, whoever the good they is. <laughs> well, the pressure of hard times makes strong people and we're going to need strong people if we want to rebuild the old world and forget about this parasitic takeover that happened, or at least put it behind us. Really impressive work. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Keep at it. And thanks so much. Thank you very much for the invitation, Greg. I've really enjoyed talking to you. There we go, guys. Love it. These alternative history shows are super interesting to me. I think we got an A on this one. I know we had a couple of B's in September. In a case or two, maybe even that's being generous, but I think we hit an A today. 
And since you're only ever as good as your last show in podcasting, I'll take it. And I know that some of these reconstructions take it too far for a large part of the card-carrying members of conspiracy culture, but the major thread seems to be a massive Moorish influence in pre-colonial America. And when you see older buildings that look like the damn Sultan's Palace from Aladdin in some American cities, totally not in line with anything around them, and then you look into the history of these buildings themselves, they will often tell you that some rich billionaire built it in the 1800s as an homage to the Moorish style. And researchers like Michelle are looking at these situations in aggregate and saying, What's more likely, a bunch of eugenicists just love the architectural stylings of North Africans so much that they can't help but recreate them? Or they killed off those people and just moved in? And look, I know there are a lot of holes yet to be filled in. This happens with a lot of conspiracy stuff. You point out that there's a lie or something doesn't add up, and then the response is, well, then what is it? It's like, well, hey, it's not my job to actually deliver the absolute truth. I'm just telling you that there's something funny here. And maybe it's someone else's job to truly pull on that thread. But that's what I like about these, pointing out little areas where things don't really add up. And then looking at more and more situations, more and more American cities where you could say the same thing. I've talked about all these situations, but I've lived in St. Louis, San Diego, and now Tampa. All three of them have these oddities, whether it's the World Fair situation or some of these weird buildings that don't fit. You don't even have to look that hard if you're a little bit open to seeing things in a new light. And if we have these stories of a multicultural trove of artifacts in a restricted area around the Grand Canyon and other things like that, there was the old show with Harry Hubbard that went over several finds in caves and that sort of thing. Well, if those stories are true, how did that stuff get there? We have to say there was some form of cross-continental travel at a time that doesn't fit the historical mold. I also think it's an interesting premise to say that these Freemasons didn't really know much except how to steal and claim ownership over some architectural marvels that needed to be explained away. The Shriners stuff was really great from that perspective. The Fez hats, the crescent and star symbol. It really does feel like they're mocking the Moors. But they get in their little cars during the annual city parade, and we all just clap and cheer because people don't know anything about the deeper history or what they're celebrating. So I like it. We did that episode with the ethical skeptic not long ago who pointed out a few Native American tribes that have the star and crescent symbol. That came up again today, too. And I'm also reminded of Ross Ben. He's a black Rastafarian guy who often refers to the American indigenous, meaning Native American and black people. And I've asked him about that years ago. And he said, well, I don't think all black people in America were brought as slaves. And I just kind of said, oh, okay, I didn't really dig much deeper, but that really fits in with this sort of perspective, too. It's also said regularly that the archons who have the elite possessed are not capable of creativity. They can only manipulate. Well, that fits, too. It's hard to say what the exact truth is. History is a pretty large topic. 
But it's clear the European royal families sprang up pretty suddenly and they were all related and desperately wanted to get to every corner of the earth to convert or kill the adults and re-educate the children. I said in my intro that you can take a lot of events and see that even if there was an alternative take, it's usually drowned out by the slow, constant pressure of the official narrative. And I do think that's true. Of course, we have things like the JFK assassination and 9-11 that still have pretty vocal critics. But it's not like kids in school are going to be learning both sides. Even with the internet, what is the state of 9-11 criticism in 2050? If you just look at how loyal Gen Z is to the system, it's pretty safe to say it'll be a smaller thing than it is even today. So this stuff is really interesting to me. We barely scratched the surface. Michelle has many, many hours breaking down all sorts of things from the incredibly similar electric tram system worldwide and the Red Cross's own history to a look into the origins of cities like Salem, Oregon, and many others. All these threads start to tie together a pretty interesting conspiracy cardigan. But I'm glad we could fit in what we could. As always, The Plus Show only adds a whole lot more to a show you seemed to enjoy or you would have left already. We talked about orphan trains and repopulation efforts, the original free energy function of the fireplace in homes, the U.S. Capitol buildings overseas match, and the role of the elite in this system, and a lot of other stuff, too. Sign up for Plus right there in your show notes or at thehiresidechats.com. And yes, you can still use most major podcasting apps, including Apple Podcasts. Once you sign up, we have instructions for you on how to get it going. You will also see the link in the show notes for the Patreon, which is another way to get the full archive of shows and ongoing shows. And you can use the Patreon link on Spotify, too. So twice as much THC, all the same ways you want to listen, and a seven-day free trial to prove I'm right. I get messages all the time from people who think they have to use my website to access the Plus shows. And I just guess I need to be a little more vocal about saying, no, that's not true. You just plug in the RSS feed into the apps you already use, and you're listening to the full two uninterrupted hours, and I'm getting eight bucks more a month. Also, I'm now using the YouTube channel and social media accounts to put up video clips from every episode, and some of those are Plus clips too. So if you want to get a sense for the video or the look on my face when some of this information gets dropped, that's there for you. And you might also hear something you didn't hear in the free first hour. And now, as for the meetup calendar, September 12th, we got LA Truth once again at the Flame International Restaurant in LA. October 14th, a whole slew of events. We got one in Edgewater, Colorado. One in Rappingers Falls, New York. One in Lansing, Michigan. And one in Huntington, Indiana. October 18th, I've mentioned this. It's the PlayStation Virtual Meetup. And October 20th, we got one in Cincinnati, Ohio. Which also looks like it will be the fourth time that a THC meetup has happened there. I love it. Go forth and find some new friends based on a mutual love of THC and have 
more like-minded contacts the next time some fear campaign tries to wreck your life. But big thanks to Michelle. She was just so awesome. Her body of work is even more impressive than we could demonstrate today. And I'm really happy with how it turned out. I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, history hijackers, timeline transformers, and agents of the big empire. Your fucking move. I won't take it. No, I refuse. If it's all right, I'll keep my refuge. I've been scheming a bigger things and have to leave my old life behind. Gotta transfer to the inner earth. I built a box, built a hole. Got a neat elevator going under. And now you'll find me in the bunker. Take it under.